0: So we're going to talk about Psalm 22 as we continue our study on where is Jesus in the Old Testament. Of course, the answer to that question, according to Jesus Himself, is everywhere. And we haven't looked at any of the Psalms yet. There are particular Psalms that are known as Messianic Psalms that are very, um, very clearly about something more than just the experience of the person who wrote it. David, actually, in the New Testament, David is regarded as a prophet. In the New Testament. And so you see that here in Psalm 22. It is a psalm of David, as it says, and I take that seriously, that ascription. And yet it is a psalm that is also prophetic of somebody um, more than David. And I think, as we'll see, um, Jesus very much pushes us to think of this psalm as his words. And his experience. What I think is so remarkable about our God is that Christianity is utterly unique in that our God doesn't just tell us what to do. Doesn't just tell us what he likes, but he lets us into the very struggles in his heart. And Psalm 22 is a doorway into understanding the very heart of God. I think one of the great tragedies is that so many people think of Christianity as being about a bunch of rules. And they miss what is actually one of the most astonishing things about Christianity. That God has condescended to open up his very heart to us. Because he doesn't just want little robots to do his bidding. He wants love and he wants to love us. And so we come to Psalm 22. We come to a very powerful psalm of lament. And in doing so, we come to one of the most astonishing, unfolding places of the heart of our God. The idea that our God would lament is really astonishing to people. It seems that if God is sovereign and holy, lament should have no place. But Psalm 22 urges us to think otherwise. And as we unpack that mystery and explore that mystery a little bit, I hope that we will gain just an amazing picture of the love of God that touches you in a place that maybe it never has before. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? you ever felt abandoned by God? For some people, they, would, they can point, when I ask that question, they can point to a particular time, maybe a particular tragedy, a particular trial that they've suffered. For other people, it's sort of that ongoing, nagging doubt that my prayers go no farther than the ceiling. I think almost everybody who's ever walked with God can identify with feeling abandoned by God. And one of the glorious things is that our God gives us divine words, good words to use to be able to speak that and bring that to him, to work that out in his presence. This is a psalm. The psalms are intended to shape the worship of God's people. And this is an astonishing thing, that lament is given a place in the worship of God's people. So there's all kinds of surprises, I think, as we come to Psalm 22. It was interesting. I was looking for versions of it to sing, and so many hymn writers who have done versifications of psalms skip Psalm 22. I thought it was kind of astonishing, um, because I've got quite a lot of hymn books and quite a lot of versions of the psalms. I finally found the one that we sang, and then I found one that we're going to sing after the sermon. But Psalm 22 is one of the remarkable psalms. For me, there are two passages of the Bible that time and time again, ever since I was your age in college, God has used when my heart is cold to melt my heart again. Psalm 22 is one. Isaiah 53 is the other. My encouragement during this week, Holy Week in particular, is to spend some time in those passages. And to help you with that, we're going to talk about Psalm 22 tonight. So, if you will, let's read Psalm 22. This is a Psalm of David. that to the tune of the doe of the morning is kind of strange because it seems like that would be like a nice, you know, sweet tune. Except, you know, what some Bible commentators say, remember that does were often hunted, particularly in the morning. And so there's a sense in which there's an up and a down, you know, kind of thing. I don't know, probably speculation. But this is a psalm of lament that takes a very interesting turn. It's almost like two psalms stuck together that don't seem to fit together. But in the experience of Christ and in the work of Christ, they come together in a way no one could have expected. So this is God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this strange psalm. This psalm that gives such an honest voice to our lament, to our confusion, to our disorientation. And yet is so full of confidence for a future a future of feast and good news. We pray that you would open our hearts to behold wondrous things from this, your word. And we pray that through this psalm, we may come to know and love Jesus even more. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, I think it's very important that we, that we say something about this cry of lament. Because as I look out over the evangelical church, the church of people who say they believe the good news of the gospel, believe that you need to have a relationship with Jesus, all the, those kinds of things that the Bible teaches, I find that this issue of lament is a troubling one and often one that people don't know what to do with. It is true that there are more psalms of disorientation, psalms about where are you, God? Why is my life like this? Then there are psalms that are happy psalms, if you will, saying everything's great, thank you so much. There are some of those too. But one of the things it teaches us is that the normal Christian life is an up and down experience And lament has a real central role to play. And I think that, you know, before we zoom in to the details of the psalm, it's worth pondering a God who would include lament psalms in the divinely inspired songs of worship for his people. Our God is not a God who is afraid of our tears and our confusion and our cries. He invites us to speak those things to him, to sing those things to him. And I think it's particularly appropriate that these, that these words are put into the form of a song. St. Augustine said that he who sings prays twice. And what he's getting at there is that there is an intensification a feeling when you sing things. So it's one thing to say a lament. It's another thing to sing this cry. So God is not afraid of us feeling this and feeling it deeply. And he invites us to bring it to him and to speak it to him. David here feels abandoned. Abandoned. He's not just confused. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's all kinds of paradox, even in that first line. He wants to say, my God, you're my God, but you've forsaken me. This is why we call this a psalm of disorientation, because those two things should never really go together, should they? My God forsaken me. The whole sweep of the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, assures us that God will never leave us or forsake us. But David writes these words and God puts them in the Bible so that we can understand that at times this is what God's children feel like. David, the one who was described as a man after God's own heart, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his anguish is amplified by the fact that he knows who God is. It's not just like he's saying, well, uh, there's some divine being out there somewhere, but I don't really know much about what he, she, or it may be like, but I really wish I did. I feel kind of abandoned. No, for David, what intensifies his anguish is he knows this God. He knows what he's like. He knows what he's done. You're the one who saved your people. You're the one who's answered their cries. And yet now you have forsaken me. You see that? His anguish is amplified by what he knows about God. And I think that's, you know, I think um, that's that's really fascinating, really amazing. If you dig into what it is he's afraid of, I think verse 5 is really interesting. He talks about what he knows about God and how in you our ancestors put their trust in verse 4. And then in verse 5, to you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Not only is David suffering some kind of trial, we don't know exactly what. He feels abandoned, but he's also afraid of being ashamed. What What does that mean? It means that he is... He is afraid that he will be exposed as one who has trusted foolishly. And the mocking that he's experiencing now, these people, they mock my trust in you. And David in his heart of hearts is suspecting that they might have good reason to mock him because he might truly be a fool. And the truth of that May become exposed for all the world to see. The mocking he's experiencing now, the scorn that he's experiencing now, may prove to be just a foretaste if God doesn't show up. It's a hard place to be. And he talks here about how, you know, I was made to trust you from birth. Maybe some of you can identify with that. Maybe some of you can say, I've never known a time when I didn't know that Jesus was, was kind and merciful. I've never known a time that I didn't know him, but now I'm really wondering whether that trust may have been misplaced. I'm having experiences. This, I mean, to me, this is a very relevant psalm to college students. Because so many people grow up with sort of a set of assumptions and beliefs. And college is a time when a lot of those beliefs are put to the test. Not only that, but it's a time when you go through experiences that threaten to shake your confidence in everything you thought you ever believed. And sometimes what makes it even worse is it seems that God doesn't care. And he doesn't answer you. And he doesn't seem to give you those feelings that you had when you were younger. And you wonder, what in the world is going on? If I was God, I wouldn't treat my people like this. Can you identify with this? Abandonment, feelings of abandonment always raise these questions. Am I loved? Have I been misled? This is the internal trial that accompany suffering and external trials. And and here, you know, by David voicing these internal struggles, he encourages us to think about and to reflect on what is going on in our hearts. God wants us to think about that, to reflect upon what's really going in our hearts. We see this wrestling of faith. I love the way it goes back and forth, back and forth. I'm experiencing this, yet I know this but then I'm experiencing this, yet I know this, and he's going back and forth. It's very true to reality as I've experienced it, and as I've walked with people through these sorts of things. The life of faith is a life of back and forth, isn't it? Back and forth between what you've been taught, maybe since birth, and what your current experience is telling you. And I want you to see that God is kind and compassionate to give you God breathed divine true words to voice this in the midst of these experiences. Calvin, John Calvin, has. A book where he goes through the various Psalms and talks about what the various verses mean. It's what we call a Bible commentary. And in Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, in the introduction, he has this wonderful um, word picture where he talks about the Psalms and he says, I've been accustomed to think of this book of the Psalms as a little anatomy of the soul. And I've found that sometimes, oftentimes, he says, I, I don't even know that I'm feeling something until I pray it or read it or sing it in the Psalms, and I find that there's not a single emotion common to mankind that is not represented here in the Psalms, and it's represented here to give us words to be able to speak to God about these things, particularly when you're in difficult places emotionally. Isn't it good to know that God has given you divine words to use to be able to speak to him about this? Maybe you didn't even know you were feeling abandoned until you sing these words and you say these words. You say, you know, maybe that is some of what's going on in my heart of hearts. God has given us good words to use. And here's what I want you to see. Faith, as the Bible understands it, faith, and as the Bible describes it, I would say, faith is not so much seen in sort of rising above difficulty, faith is seen often more clearly in the direction of the cry. And there are these little clues here. My God, my God. That's the language of faith. But for a lot of people, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Seems like the kinds of things that no self-respecting follower of God should ever say. How dare you would say that? But maybe your idea of faith needs to broaden. Because the Christian faith is a place where you can say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christian faith is a place where you can say, look, in verse um, 19, but you, Lord, and there it's all capitals because it's the covenant name, Yahweh, do not be far from me. You are my strength, come quickly to help me. Do you see the direction of the cry? In spite of feeling abandoned, David is still crying out to his God. Now, for many, this ruffles their idea of faith and what it feels like. And I think, you know, one of the great tragedies is that so many Christians are afraid to cry out to God like this. And I think one of the reasons is because of the prayers and the songs that they sing in their churches that don't invite them to include lament or difficult emotions at all in their understanding of what Christianity feels like. We model for people what the normal Christian life feels like by everything we do when we gather together as Christians, whether it's praying, whether it's singing, speaking. And for a lot of people, like this kind of reality, this kind of experience has no place in public worship. It's tragic. It's tragic for people who are Christians in those churches who are being squeezed into thinking of Christianity as this one-dimensional thing, it's also tragic for people who aren't part of that community of faith who are trying to figure out what the heck Christianity is. Because they're maybe feeling like, well, Christianity is for people who never get sad. Because all the people I know are Christians, their testimony is they used to be sad, but now they're not anymore, now that they know Jesus. And they got the love of Jesus down, down, down in their hearts, you know. Well... The Psalms sort of smack you upside the head and say, not so fast. Christianity might be a more perplexing thing than you imagined it to be, right? Faith is not evidenced by keeping everything bottled up inside. Rather, faith is often seen in the direction of our cry. And if you're looking for a good book to explore this more this summer, um, I might direct you to a book by Dan Allender called The Cry of the Soul, which we may have some ladies studying this fall. There's talk of that Monday night. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, but it's, it's a very helpful book. Some of us uh, went through it, some of the older guys. Very helpful book in how your emotions help you think about God and yourself and in the intersection of the two. So we have this, this, this cry of lament and we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. If your understanding of Christianity does not include cries of lament, your idea of Christianity needs to be adjusted. Right? Because this is this is true. This is real. And what's also fascinating is that these are words that Jesus himself used in his darkest hour. Perhaps some of you recognize the, those lines. The, 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 the Gospels record for us, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In Aramaic, Jesus cries out the first verse of Psalm 22 on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the last verse, as it's translated here, says he has done it. But it is also possible and perfectly appropriate to translate the Hebrew there, it is finished. And if you translate it that way, you come upon another saying of Jesus on the cross. And so what you have here is this astonishing idea that on the cross, Jesus is meditating upon Psalm 22 from verse 1 to the very end. And that means that not only are these good, divinely inspired words that we can use to voice our lament, but these are words that Jesus himself uses to cry out to God during his darkest hour. And So we see this honest cry of abandonment that God invites us to speak to him, we see this profound struggle of faith that God invites us to bring to him. But in Jesus, this cry is taken to a whole new level. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is made like us so that he can empathize, so that he can sympathize with us in our suffering and our sorrow. But here in Psalm 22, we see this astonishing thing. We don't just read in in, in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus sympathizes with us. Here in Psalm 22, we actually see it. These are Jesus' words, speaking the torment of his soul as he hangs on the cross. Do you understand that? In Psalm 22, we don't just learn like somebody tells us from far off you know Jesus really sympathizes with us in our sorrow no it's one thing to be told that it's another thing to actually see it here what kind of God opens up his heart like this to his people who says come inside and feel what I feel try these words on yourself that's the God that we have you see this What kind of God gives us this kind of access into his very heart? And the only answer I know is the God who wants our very hearts. See, it's not enough for God just to send Jesus to rescue you from hell. He didn't need to open up his heart anguish to us if that's all he wanted to do. It's so tragic when people think that the only point of Christianity is to settle what happens when you die. From the very beginning, from the garden, God has wanted to walk with his people in the cool of the day and have rich relationship with them. What's tragic about the fall is not just that Adam and Eve break the rules, but they rupture a relationship with the lover of their souls. And ever since then, God has been pursuing them to win their hearts back. And here in Psalm 22, he opens his very heart to us. Right? Now, I, uh, I, I've been one who, if you knew my story, you would, you would say, well, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. So anybody that knows Midwesterners knows that feelings are not easily expressed. Right? I, I, I tell people, people in Iowa can make talking about the weather an art form. Like, they can do it for hours without really saying anything at all about what they really are feeling. <laughs> and if you were around my family, you, you'd, you'd understand that. Um, not only that, but I had some experiences um, that really kind of locked that pattern into place. Had a, a, my, really one of my best friends, who was going to be my roommate uh, freshman year in college, was stabbed, brutally murdered, uh, my senior year of high school. And I didn't cry for at least five years I felt that Christians who know that God is sovereign shouldn't cry about things, right? It's pretty messed up. But I had this sort of theological error, and it was very convenient for me because I didn't want to feel things. I felt like if I started crying, I wasn't sure I could stop, right? Now, I, I come into sort of, you know, being a pastor even years later, and I have a friend of mine tell me at one point, you know, Kevin... If you can't weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice, you may be a good teacher, but you'll never be a pastor. Those words really haunted me, because it's one thing to know that, it's another thing to know, like, what do you do with that? Oh, okay, I'll just start feeling things now. Thanks for that tip. Um, No. So in a lot of ways, I felt very convinced of my need to do that, but very ashamed of my inability to do it. Now, I don't know about you, I I suspect that everybody in this room has certain feelings that they would do anything to avoid feeling. And it's probably connected to your story. It's probably connected to your story, the way you've been sinned and sinned against. And I found great help one time from this poem by this hymn writer, James Montgomery. He, he, he wrote this poem back in the 19th century on Jesus' prayers. And it helped me at this point to show me that the very thing I would do anything to avoid, feeling sadness, is the very thing that Jesus took on the cross. And it gave me a doorway into understanding and to feeling the love of God. Let let, let me read these these lines from his poem and then explain what I mean because I think this is very important. This is talking about Jesus' prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the poem's much longer than this, but this is the section I want to draw your attention to. So, talking about Jesus praying the Garden of Gethsemane, James Montgomery writes this. Next, with strong cries and bitter tears, thrice hallowed he that doleful ground where trembling with mysterious fears, his sweat like blood drops fell around. And being in an agony, he prayed yet more earnestly. Here often, spirit, let me kneel, share in the speechless griefs I see. And while he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love to me. Break my hard heart and grace supply for him who dies for me to die. Now what Montgomery is proposing in this poem is that there's a doorway from your fear and your feelings into feeling what Jesus felt on the cross. As I meet people all the time that for them, Feeling the love of God is a very vague, nebulous, abstract idea. And it certainly, they don't feel the love of God as strongly as they feel their fears, their disappointments, their abandonment, their shame. But what James Montgomery is helping us to understand, and what I think Psalm 22 is under, helping us to understand, is that Jesus felt all of those things that you're afraid to feel and that I'm afraid to feel, and I actually get credit for what he felt. I don't, have to, I don't have to feel for Jesus to love me. And when I begin to understand that, there's a doorway into feeling his love for me. In other words, I would do anything and I do a lot of things to avoid feeling weak. Can you identify? And here's what's the astonishing thing about the cross, is that Jesus took that on willingly, and he didn't have to. So if for you, the feeling of like, if, I, if I'm seen as weak, I'll just die. Jesus said, I'll feel that. And so when you feel that fear, do you understand that you have an emotional connection there to what Jesus felt on the cross, and he didn't have to feel it? He didn't deserve to feel weak. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to be afraid. I Think very clearly, he's afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's one thing to think that Jesus emphasizes with us. It's another thing to see how Psalm 22, he opens up his very heart to us. Because you need to know that whatever you feel or whatever you're afraid to feel, Jesus took and Jesus felt. What feelings do you do everything to avoid? There's a doorway there for you to understand the love of Jesus by connecting to what he felt. All right. now surely this is a strange psalm. If we zoom out again, this is a psalm that cannot be fully explained by David's experience. Because this is a psalm about somebody going through the experience of torture And death. Verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. In verse 15, he's dead. Right? And then in verse 19, there's hope that extends beyond death. And then you get to the end of the psalm, and he's talking about feasting and singing and giving testimony about how the Lord has kept his promise. And you're like, wait a second, he died. Like, who has died and then wrote about it after the fact? That's what you're presented with in this psalm, right? This is a psalm about somebody going through the experience of torture and death and then singing about it after the fact. And it pushes you to say, David never experienced that. There are things that David experienced that seem to find parallels in this psalm, but there are a lot of things that go beyond anything he experienced. And so while it's so wonderful that God gives us good words to use when we feel abandoned, and it's so amazing that these words were words that Jesus himself used on the cross, the glorious message of this psalm goes even beyond that. The glorious message of this psalm is we don't just have an empathetic God who lets us into his very heart cries and struggles. We have a Savior who died a death on the cross that rescues us from death and hell because he took hell on the cross. At the heart of Christianity is something beyond mere empathy. At the heart of Christianity is a bloody cross and a bloody cross that's not the end. An empty tomb. And this is what this psalm foretells. Gaze upon the crucified Christ through this text. Look, Jesus is the one who was surrounded by enemies, who blindfolded him and beat him and mocked him and said, Prophesy now and tell us who hit you. Jesus is the one who they spat upon, they stripped him naked. Do you want to talk about shame? humiliation. Jesus the one whose hands were pierced. You understand that this psalm was written generations before crucifixion was ever invented. This detail about Jesus' hands and feet being pierced is not recorded in any of the Gospels. But we know that that's what the Romans did in crucifixion. And it's what Psalm 22 tells us about. We know that Jesus cried out My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the one whose clothing were used to cast lots, right? This is is our God, right? And this was God's intentional plan. See, Psalm 22 confirms for us that the cross that Jesus suffered was not an interruption to God's plan. It was God's plan. It wasn't God making the best out of a bad situation, like Jesus is proclaiming love to everybody. I, I remember one time um, when I was up at Berkeley College Music, back when I was in college, this guy screaming at me. <laughs> he said this. He said, "Jesus Christ, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon were all saying the same thing. All you need is love." like, okay. <laughs> He's screaming at me, of course, as he says this. I'm saying, that's, that's not really all that Jesus said, buddy. Jesus says, you need someone to die in your place. Right? And Jesus does that. Christianity was not, is not about Jesus coming, telling everybody to be nice and love everybody. And then somehow he offended the wrong people and he gets put to death. And then God says, well, you know, this is a demonstration of God's love. No, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And here's what's amazing. God puts down this plan. He tells us about it in Psalm 22 and he fulfills the plan. That's what amazes me is that God writes this down. And then for a thousand years, generation after generation who try his patience, he doesn't give up on this plan. He doesn't back down. He doesn't say, well, I was planning to do that. But you know what? These people don't appreciate it. They don't even want me. They don't love me. They don't want to have anything to do with me. They run after all these other gods. Forget this plan. No. God puts down this plan, writes it down, and he stays committed to it. Right? Right? And then the psalm ends with a feast and a mission. So we get death, hope beyond the grave, a singer who's been pierced but is now throwing a feast, celebrating keeping his vow, and the celebration has implications for people who aren't even born yet. That's what you've got to make sense of with this psalm. You've got a singer who is pierced, who is laid in the grave, who's now throwing a feast, celebrating that he kept his vow, and the celebration has implications for people who haven't even been born yet. That's what this psalm is about, right? Now, I think in some ways there's a divide among Christians. There are some Christians I know who really like the idea of feasting. <laughs> they just want to feast. They just want to enjoy. They just want to relax. They just want to feast. And then there are other Christians who really don't like that, and they get kind of mad at the feasting Christians. They just want to work. They just say, well, Christianity is really about, you know, doing all this work. One of my favorite quotes from this guy, Watchman Nee, says, Christianity is holding onto the plow while wiping away tears. And I think that's, there's a lot, of, a lot about that. But it's also sitting down and feasting with Jesus right but we tend to have people kind of based on our temperament we either like to feast or we like to work but here we find that both are together both are important you don't get to pick or choose to be a Christian means there's a mission and there's a feast and some of you may like one or the other but both of them both of them are important right So first, you get the mission. Listen, the gospel is good news. This is a psalm about proclaiming in the midst of the sanctuary, in the midst of God's people, that God has done something. He's done something, right? Jesus died, and he came back to life. And even now, as Hebrews chapter 2, 11 and 12 says, quoting verse 22 of this psalm, Jesus sings even now in the midst of his people, as the crucified and resurrected Lord. And the mission that he gives us is to spread this news about what God has done. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 31. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. If you want to understand what is the mission, the mission is to tell people about God's righteousness, about what he has done right, and that he has done it, or in the words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. The gospel is news about something God has done that has implications for people who haven't even been born yet. But it's also about a feast. All history is going to a feast the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. But remember what it took for Jesus to celebrate this feast with his people. There's this great story in John chapter 2 where Jesus is sitting at a wedding feast. And there's no doubt about it, he's brooding. There's all this celebration all around. And his mother comes to him and says, hey, uh, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And what he says to her is, woman, why do you bother me? My hour is not yet. Now, the NIV translation softens that because we don't like a Jesus who talks to his mother that way. We don't like it. So they put in dear woman. But I stand here, I put my hand on the Bible and say the word dear is not in the text. It's not there. He says, woman, why do you bother me? My hour is not yet. And she must have thought like, uh, who's talking about your hour? What the heck are you talking about? They've just run out of wine. They've run out of wine. Can't you do something? It's a fascinating passage. And and what's going on there is that Jesus is sitting in the midst of this wedding celebration, probably like most of you are going to do when you go to Joel and Melissa's wedding or whatever weddings you go to in the next few months. If you're a single person, what do you think about when you go to a wedding? I know the girls will be more in touch with this than the guys. You think about your wedding. And guys, let me just tell you, if you take a single girl on a date to a wedding, be prepared for an emotional roller coaster because they feel all kinds of things. Yeah, they do. And you probably will too. At least you should. One of the funnest things about being a pastor is you get the experience that most people only get once in their life of seeing that bride coming down the aisle and being close enough to the groom that you can hear him gasp when he sees her. There's something really glorious about that. It's such a great opportunity to talk about the gospel and just connect the dots because it's all there, right? But here, Jesus is sitting at this wedding, and he's not enjoying himself. He's brooding over his hour. And in John's gospel, his hour is always a reference to the cross, So Jesus is sitting at a wedding feast, thinking about what it's going to take for him to sit at his own wedding feast one day. And he's thinking about the cross. And Tim Keller has this great place where he says, here what you see is Jesus is sitting in the midst of all this joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit in the midst of sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Isn't that glorious? So this isn't just a psalm about crying out your lament. It's a psalm about connecting the dots of what Jesus did, living and dying in the place of sinners, securing for you a place at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And what it means to be a Christian now is sipping that coming joy in the midst of this sorrow. Not so that you don't have any sorrow, because Christianity is not stoicism. And this psalm is still there in the Bible for us to sing. But we don't just have a God who empathizes with us. We have a God who secured a glorious future, a future that even spills back into the now so that we can know even the joy here and now, communing with him. This is why whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper in the Christian church, We're reminded of these words that Paul says, that we celebrate his death now until he comes again. That his death brings together past, present, and future and redefines all three of them. And this is what Psalm 22 is about, right? We can be encouraged in the midst of our sorrow that Jesus has made and kept his vows, to not lose a single one of his sheep that he died for. He's opened the way for us to feast with him forever. And it begins even now. Let's pray.